All right, so let's talk about Leviticus today. Uh, we have been in a new series called Leviticus, and we've been talking through uh, some of the aspects to just get our, our sights in the right direction. Let me say this this morning, though, okay? The Old Testament is important. The New Testament is not meant to replace the Old Testament. The Old Testament was and is important even to us as believers today. We find that the promises of God that are in the Old Testament are given to the people of Israel in a distinct time, in a distinct location, for a distinct reason, but we see the fulfillment of those promises come through the New Testament. So when we started our series last week on Leviticus, I hope you've accepted the challenge to read a little bit of it. Um, some of you are eager to get through it. Some, somebody invited me to a plan where we're going to read Leviticus a few times over the next few weeks. Um, I'm not keeping up that speed just yet, but I will tell you, if you can just take a bite-sized portion or a piece and start to read through it, I really believe that God wants to give us some revelation and some understanding throughout this series. I say that in order to tell you that if you miss that introductory uh, message, you can always listen online. You can go, if you have an iPhone, to the podcast app and search Celebrate Church, because we'd love for you to be in the know about everything that happens around here. And last week, that foundational message really sets us up for this whole series. So you might have missed out if you weren't here for that. Today's the second message. And last week, we talked about ritual impurity and moral impurity. I want to give you just a little bit of a reminder of what it is. Ritual impurity had to deal with the cleanliness of the tabernacle, or you could say sacred space. In several verses, in multiple places throughout Leviticus, depending on the version that you read, you might actually see a phrase called the tent of meeting. This wasn't just a meeting house to show up to with other people and that kind of thing. It was the tent of meeting for God's presence to be with his people, and that's where you went to meet with him. So ritual impurity had to deal with the cleanliness of that area known as sacred space and all of the articles that get used in worship. Now, granted, we don't live in those times in those days. Uh, you come dressed casually and comfortably, and I'm thankful I get to too. And we show up here and we enjoy incredible worship. Give it up for our worship team. That was great this morning. Um, we get to do that. We get to give. We get to serve. We get to show up. And then we get to fellowship throughout the week. And we entertain ourselves with each other. We go to each other's houses. We have Bible studies. We have different things that have us together again. And we get to worship God in various ways. So ritual impurity had to do with the cleanliness of the tabernacle. And I got to tell you, I'm thankful for those who vacuum this tabernacle <laughs> and who show up and wipe your kids' fingerprints off of those glass doors because there's always like a bunch of smudges. You know, there's, there's people involved in all of that process still today. It's just a little bit different. So in the Old Testament during this time, birth, death, sex, and disease, all of those things defiled a person or made them ritually impure or unclean for a period of time. It was understood by them that those things were potentially contagious. And there was room, even in the first several chapters of Leviticus we see, there's room for error because what happens if I see my kid in the backyard playing with a dead grasshopper? Well, he's touched a dead animal, a dead thing, 
And there's got to be purification before I bring my whole family to the temple. So there is even allowance for the understanding of, hey, even if you don't realize that you've done something that would kind of bring uh, an uncleanness to the tabernacle, there was allowance for that by God. We have to remember this, that ritual impurity was never a litmus test for someone's spiritual standing. So I said this last week, and I'll probably repeat it several times throughout this series. When we look in the Leviticus in that book, and we see different things about, well, he touched a dead uh, body on the side of the road, you know, an animal that had died, or she was at her time of the month, she was considered ritually impure. That had nothing to do with the person's spiritual standing. God views men and women with the same light, and I'm thankful for that, okay? So we've got to get that just understanding there that those impurities were only skin deep. Moral impurity, though, was a different story. These types of impurity involved moral corruption. Your punishment was getting expelled from the community or even death. Moral impurity was basically permanent. Whereas ritual impurity was something you could kind of fix in seven days or less, or sometimes a little bit longer. But moral impurity was something that was of a permanent nature. You've got to understand, if you murdered someone back then, you were sentenced to death as well. Or you were expelled from the community, ripped of all of your possessions, could not worship with your family, could not be with them. You had to go somewhere else. I'll give you a little clue, which might help you. When you read Leviticus, there are cities of refuge in quotation marks that are mentioned throughout there. Those are cities where all the criminals who got expelled from the community could go and live together. I don't want to be in one of those places. Okay. But God wanted them to come into his presence without impurity, and he wanted them to worship him. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some sacrifices as well as offerings that are offered in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, and we're going to look at some of the reasons for them. You should know this, though. This is a teaching moment for you to really understand and grasp this, that the Old Testament limits sacrifice, the word sacrifice, that language, to animal offerings— Animals that are part of the ritual, and even more specific to that, instances where the animal is slaughtered and becomes a part of a meal. Okay, So the word sacrifice has to do with the death of a thing and that life being given and shared among the priest or the offerer, as well as potentially, in their minds, they understood God would have a fellowship meal with them. I like the instances where we see in the Old Testament that an image of God appears um, and we see him coming and meeting with Abraham and things like that. And we see that understanding that they had fellowship and communion together, not communion, bread and wine like we do today, but communion and fellowship together where they ate something most likely in all of those instances. But offerings are much bigger than just animals. Offerings have to do with grain, with a bunch of other things that could be brought that didn't have to sacrifice their life. So you've got to think in those terms when you read the word sacrifice, it's about the slaughter of an animal and potentially, in most cases, a meal that's shared. Those priests must have been like, you know, pretty large having to eat food with everybody who showed up to church. Uh, they must have been buying bigger pants every week kind of thing. But the offerings are things like the grain offering 
where someone would maybe bake a cake. Uh, they would call a cake, not what we have here in the South as cake. They would br- bake bread or something like that or bring just raw grain into the temple, into the tabernacle. So today we're going to talk about one such offering, and it's the first one. It's called the burnt offering. I want you to go with me to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. We'll have it on the screen for you. We want you to just pay attention to it as we read. It says this, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Let's stop there just for a second and think about that. Without blemish means no marks, no moles, no scars, no issues, okay? There's nothing wrong with this animal. He's actually the best one out of the whole herd, okay? That's what God deserves. Back then, he was trying to show them, I deserve the best. You better bring the best. If you don't bring the best, there are bad things that happen to people in the Old Testament, And I really believe that there are bad things that still happen to us today when we don't give God our best. So it says he'll bring a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That word tabernacle would be there. That he may be, say the word, accepted. That he would be accepted before the Lord. So this, in a nutshell, this verse right here on the screen, tells you what the whole burnt offering is all about. The Hebrew word for offering is a word called korban, spelled with a Q, okay? It's the item that you bring when you present an offering. So if I'm to read this correctly, and I've skipped two verses which were introductory, and I'm just in verse 3, what is his hope? Does it say anything about being forgiven of a sin? Does it say anything about him apologizing for something wrong that he did to someone or to God? No. His hope is that he will be accepted before the Lord. So what does the burnt offering mean? Here's what it really means. It means that the offerer is seeking fellowship with God. It was like a preliminary thing, and there are times in Leviticus that it's just the first of a handful of other things that get brought in because maybe they do have sin that they recognize they've committed. Maybe they have something else that they're worried about. But here, the burnt offering is really to be accepted before the Lord. He wants to have a little time with God when he comes to his house, so he brings a gift. How many of you have ever showed up to someone's house with a gift, right? We've all done that, whether it's a birthday party or a hostess gift and somebody invited you over for dinner and you try to bring them a plant or a flower, something nice or whatever, something they could use in the house. We do that sort of thing as a token of friendship, even in our relationships now, not necessarily knocking on a random door and handing them a gift and being like, hey, can I have some time with you? But in the way that the Israelites understood it, it was the safest thing to do to show up. And when you showed up to God's house, you better have something in your hand. He wants to be safe in God's presence. So he's bringing God a gift. You have to understand they held on in the, in the Israelite days of living in the desert, in the wilderness, they held on to a very high percentage of fear when it came to God. 
Because if I showed up and I was unclean or impure, I could make a plague break out. There could be bad things that happened. People could die if I disobeyed God. And when I looked over at the church, I didn't see a steeple and a church bell. I saw a pillar of fire that then changed to a cloud that looked like smoke. And so I knew that there was something going on literally in the heavens that demonstrated God's presence in this place. And let me tell you, it's with trepidation in my heart that I show up there kind of trembling in fear before I spend time with the God of all creation. So you got to think about it. The, the whole goal of this is for you to get into the mind of the ancient Israelite and see how they saw rather than as a modern day Christian going through Christ and all the way back then to try to see every other part that we can imagine. We want to see it the way that they saw it and see how far God brought them. Amen. So he wants to be safe in God's presence. And some of you might just protest that thought for a moment and say, you know, that sounds a little bit like a bribe. But if you think about it and you're trying to visit God for a little while and you need to talk to him about something or you need to ask the priest to pray over you because you've broken out with some rash in the desert, there's no modern medicine and that kind of thing, you have to approach him where he lives. You don't want anything bad to happen to you. You want him to accept you. So what else should you do? So think about it like this. It's a way of initiating communion. If you were to read through the rest of the passage, you won't find a single specific sin that needs to be forgiven. It's not in the picture that we're looking at today. So when we look at the burnt offering and when we hear that term all the way throughout Leviticus, you'll have a little bit better understanding. Like I said, there are times where it preceded other offerings or sacrifices. It was the signal to God that somebody's at the door and wants to spend time with him. It's the thing that initiates communion with God. I want to challenge you to apply that to your own life because we do treat God oftentimes like a genie. Admittedly, I've done it. I know you've done it too. We have done that where we've showed up with a honeydew list, tried to rub the lamp, or we've read the Bible for three days in a row, hoping that we'll please God enough to then pray and make that big ask to say, God, will you please? So we have to understand communion with God always in the Old Testament and I think still today, necessitates a gift on our part. Let me explain to you, though, why, why it's called an offering as opposed to sacrifice. No one, including the priest or the offerer, would have been able to eat any of it. So the animal would have been slaughtered. Everything but the hide would have been put on the fire. And then as it burned down, the ashes would be scooped out into an ash heap. And no one would get any part of that. It was a burnt offering that no one was going to eat or have a part of. So technically, a sacrifice in the biblical language is when the offerer and the priest and God, in theory, would have a meal together. All right, let's look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 says this, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Verse 5 says this, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So when we read this word atonement that shows up in verse 4, pop that back up there for me, please. 
It says he lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it should be accepted for him to make atonement for him. I want you to understand something about our English translations. Now, I am not an expert in Hebrew, Greek, or biblical languages, ancient Near Eastern languages or anything like that, but I have done a little bit of research and a little bit of time in putting this together. When I look at the word atonement, what we think, what we tend to think of, I should say, is that there is a sin issue. We tend to think because we've heard the word atonement throughout our life, we, we think maybe of guilt or sin or the need for forgiveness. But that word atonement that shows up here is not really so much leaning towards guilt or sin or forgiveness as much as the original meaning really is something that means to purge. So it's, it's for him to be purged and made clean. So yes, we can then further along say, clean a guilty conscience, clean him of his sin and that sort of thing. That's how we've ended up where we are. But the blood isn't applied to the offer. In the sacrificial system in Leviticus, the blood is never applied to the person who brought the offering. There's one spot later on in the series we'll talk about when Uh, Moses is there with the people and there is a sacrifice that's given and he is to sprinkle the blood on all of the elements in the tabernacle and then he is to sprinkle it on the people. Now, I don't know that he had one person pass by by the, you know, a whole million people one at a time to get something on them. But in that moment, there was something else happening that was different. That's the only instance. There's never a time where it's applied to the offerer themselves. Sometimes it's applied to the priest but not to the offerer. So you got to think in terms like this. There is another instance where, this is another instance, I should say, where if we're not careful as we read God's word, we've got to read it in context because if we're not careful, we'll superimpose Jesus onto this whole idea and we'll see things that really aren't there. Now, I say that to tell you, I am trying to give you a comprehensive look at a difficult book. I'm trying to get you to understand God's word in a new and a fresh way and to not be afraid of it. I am not telling you that I'm not thankful for Jesus and his sacrifice. In fact, I'm going to highlight some verses at the end of the message today from Ephesians and and Hebrews that tell us what a great thing God did for us in sending his son. So when I say that, I'm just trying to point you in the right direction so that we don't try to look through that lens and see things that aren't there, but really understand it like they did. So... These sacrifices rarely, if ever, pointed the ancient Israelite in a straight direction toward a future savior as a sacrifice. It's just, it's something that we should know. Let me give you a note about blood. Um, How many of you get a little squeamish around blood? Okay. Yeah. There's a couple of you. We're not, we're not, aren't you glad you don't live in those gory days that they did back then when there's blood everywhere, right? Um, I'll never forget the first time that I went to give blood. Uh, I got into the bus and they make you fill out the documents. You know, have you traveled outside the country? Do you have a disease? All this kind of stuff. And I was doing it with a buddy of mine. We had heard about somebody who was in need. And so like a bunch of us in the community said, Hey, we're going to go and give. And so I show up and I sit in that comfy little chair. How many of you have ever given blood before? Okay, so I, I sit in that comfy little chair, right? I got my, my arm out here, make the muscle, do the tourniquet, get the, you know, hey, here's the needle, it's coming. And then it gets in and I'm like, oh, that wasn't that bad. Well, I hadn't had a whole lot to eat that day. <laughs> oh no. 
Um, I hadn't had a whole lot to eat that day, and it was really nice and cool in the bus, and it was a hot day outside, and I was just comfortable. So I just kind of closed my eyes, lay back. <laughs> that nurse tapped me on the shoulder once, tapped me on the shoulder twice. Then she actually breezed my face a little bit like this. Ah, uh-uh, no, no, sir, you cannot shut your eyes. I said, oh, why, why not? Because she was worried my life was leaving. <laughs> she was worried that something bad was happening, right? So I'll never forget that moment, and I've made sure that every time after that, I never shut my eyes when I go in there, and I always get the Gatorade. Okay, anyway, but a note, a note about blood in the Old Testament. Um, about this, Hebrews 9, verse 2 says this, that the law required, talking about the Old Testament, that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Now, I can remember Eric and Jericho not too long ago presenting their mission to Africa, showing us some pictures that were gory, that had a dirty operating room with blood that had not been washed from the other victims, just kind of pooled on the floor. People are stepping in stuff to get the next person in. That was a a sight that will stay with me and causes me to pray for them. Blood is not clean, right? Right? It it carries disease and other things. It carries our issues with it. But the law back then, according to Hebrews 9 verse 2, said that nearly everything had to be cleansed with blood. There's a deeper point here. Not that blood is pure or the blood of that animal that was offered was pure as much as it's the understanding that life had to be given in God's presence. So Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, right? If you don't have blood, you don't, you're not alive, okay? So the life of the flesh is in the blood, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life given. So it's the blood that makes pure by the life given. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, I want to share with you something that I found so interesting and powerful in the thought about the burnt offering and thinking about the the bloodiness of the Old Testament law. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, it says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. Paul, when he writes to the Ephesian church, to to the church at Ephesus, he says to those believers, do you not remember that, because he's talking to a mixed group, not just Jews, but also Gentiles as well. So he's saying that, remember, there are times that you were separated from Christ. You were aliens. You were strangers to the covenant promises of God. You had no hope and without God in the world. But verse 13 says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So truly, when we think about a burnt sacrifice, something that's causing God to get us to the place of, I think he'll accept me. I think I can get 10 minutes with the priest to pray with me. I can go and and offer this other offering for these other issues or, or challenges that I'm facing in my life. Whatever the need was, there had to be this acceptance at the first part, at that first moment. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians that you were once far off, but you've been brought near to the tent of meeting, really, 
to God himself, the one who lives there by Jesus Christ. Thank God you don't have to carry no goat here every Sunday, (laughs) a goat or a bull or a ram or a whatever, in order to come in and be accepted by God. So what does all this mean for us? Aren't you glad that we no longer (laughs) live in moments like that? I know I am. If I had to be so conscious of what I'm doing just to go meet with God, even if it was with the help of a priest, that I could be hurt or I could wind up dead or my actions might cost somebody else their life, that's just downright frightening. The New Testament, though, gives us this amazing hope about how we are supposed to now approach God. And here's here's it wrapped up with a nice bow on it. Thank God I don't live in the Old Testament with all of that stuff. But as I look in the Old Testament, I can then start to see the understanding that I have as a believer to know that God, even though I was so far away, even as a pastor's kid, growing up in church, I was so far away from him. But he drew me near to himself and I have the ability to come into God's presence because of Jesus not because of anything I do, not because of any cow or anything else I could bring to him, but simply because Jesus has opened up the door. Amen? So Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 says this. I love it. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of needs. In other words, I don't have to go up to the door and meekly knock with fear in my heart and say, boy, I sure hope this gift works or else I might die. We don't have to do things that way any longer. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says this, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We talked about letting faith arise in our hearts earlier in the service. So when we want to approach God, we can come with boldness and access him with confidence. During those days, as you read through Leviticus, there was only one person that could go in and literally be in the presence of Almighty God. And that was the priest. And that only happened once a year that he would be able to have access in. I love what it says. You've got to connect the dots now. I love what it says about the death of Jesus Christ, that in those moments, the earth quaked and it shook. And it says, and the veil that was in the temple, which was a hard standing structure, the veil that was separating the holiest of all places was then torn in two. No human hand did that. The working power of God did that on your behalf. We should still have fear. A fear of God is a good thing. It'll keep you out of trouble sometimes. But not so much a fear like God's up there with a hammer waiting to strike you, but a fear to know that he is the one who's in control and that I need to listen to him. I need to obey him. It's a healthy parent-child relationship. Not abusive whatsoever, but a giving and a generous and a good father. Amen? So the typical Israelite didn't look at it like that back then. They grew up knowing about the sacrificial system, and they were used to this fearful type of system. They could read examples in the Torah, which is the Hebrew version of the scripture, and they could see where people died when something went wrong. Think about this. The message of Jesus' death, 
his, his bodily resurrection and that he was the Messiah who died to forgive them of their sins was incredible enough to hear as a New Testament living Jew in Paul's day. That was enough to say, wow, really? His death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, he did that for me, for my forgiveness of my sins. That was amazing news. But incredible news, even past that, the cherry on top, was that you now can approach God individually. You don't have to have a priest with you. You don't have to travel 20 miles into the camp. You don't have to bring an animal with you. They had never heard this news before. And Paul, on and on, tells them in every letter that he writes, he gives them this instruction about the ability for them to access God. Don't you know you have the ability to access God? This was the biggest news they would ever hear. The gift has already been given for you to access God's presence. It's unfortunate that a lot of people, and even Christians, still think about God in a skewed way, that he is the guy up there with the hammer waiting to swat them whenever they've done something wrong. And I'll give it to you. God does not tolerate sin. He wants holiness. He wants us to live a life that is God-fearing and God-pleasing. But in this, we've got to have this final thought. If we are in Christ, we no longer occupy sacred space. That's why we care less these days about a physical building. I mean, we still take care of it, but we care less about this than the Old Testament Jews did because we have become the sacred space. So this is the reason that Paul emphasizes this in other places. He says, you ought to subdue your flesh. Tell yourself no. You ought to live a God-pleasing life. You ought to shut your mouth when the temptation is there to gossip. You ought to love even when it's hard. You ought to be kind to those who are hurtful and mean to you. You ought to, you ought to, you ought to, because you are the sacred space. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says this, Do you not know that you are now God's temple? That he lives inside of you. So we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, and the very presence of God that was in the Old Testament that only one person could see once a year. We've all been welcomed in and allow him, if if we choose to, we allow him to indwell us. And that is something to celebrate. Would you stand with me today? As we talked about the burnt offering and think through what that meant for them and all the details that are inside of that, I want you to think about your own life today for just a brief moment. Think about maybe the lack of your offering. And this is not your pastor talking about your tithes. I'm, t- I'm talking about you giving yourself to God because you are the sacred space now. There is no temple that's worthy of any kind of honor except for you as a human here on this earth because God lives inside of those who allow him to. So I want you to think about that for just a moment today. Maybe you say, Pastor, you know what? My sacred space is a little dirty. (laughs) Maybe it needs some cleaning. I've heard this message all my life, and there were times when my hard heart couldn't even hear the words and understand them, I should say. 
and that was this. Are there cobwebs in some closet in your heart? Is there some area of your heart that you haven't given fully over to him? Because when he comes, he wants to come in with all of his might, all of his strength, all of his power into every crevice, and he wants to help. And I am not putting the power in your hand to tell you to be guilty today that you've got to fix it, but you do have a part in it. Jesus said, I'll fix it. I'll clean it up with you. He'll come into our lives. He'll help us in whatever area we need. So I want you to think about that for just a moment. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? If you're here today and you want to respond to the message, you say, Pastor, I I need prayer. There's an area of my life that I need prayer in. It's maybe it's a sacred space issue that it's there's dirt in some area and you know that it's not pleasing to God, but you want it to be straight with him. Would you just slip up your hand? Nobody's looking around or paying attention to you. You can do that with humility this morning and just slip up your hand. Thank you. There are hands going up around this room. Let me ask this, if you're here today and you have a need in your, in your home or in your finances or maybe a health issue for you or a family member and you say, I would like prayer, would you slip up your hand wherever you are? There are more hands going up everywhere. You can put your hands down. If you're okay with this, would you put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you or grab their hand if you're okay with it and they're okay with it? I want us to pray together, united together in this moment of prayer. Would you whisper a prayer for the person next to you? You might not even know their name, but just go ahead right now and start whispering a prayer that the Lord would help them, strengthen them, give them grace, give them guidance, heal whatever's broken. Father, you are good and your love never fails. Hallelujah. Go ahead, just whisper those prayers out. It doesn't matter what it sounds like. You might not have the right words or the perfect words. You might be a little uncomfortable doing this. I'm thankful that you're giving me this little bit of space to do this, but I just want us to be able to experience him together today in this way. Oh, you're so good to us. Hallelujah. Father, we pray for every hand raised, every heart bowed to you, Lord. Thank you for the access that your son has provided. Lord, we pray for healing and strength and wisdom and guidance today, oh God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I was reminded of the words in scripture during worship earlier, and I want to share these with you as you're finished praying. In the book of Isaiah, it says that strength will rise in our hearts in our life as we wait upon the Lord. So I don't know what you're facing, but I want us to just wait for just one more moment because he's here. He's here today because we're here together. And he may want to speak something that doesn't even involve this message today to your heart through the Holy Spirit.